Thanks very much for that kind introduction. Okay, I have to make the stand. All right, okay. Um, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Um, it is my pleasure um, and somewhat trepidation to follow many people in this room who I consider my direct and indirect teachers, in particular Professor Chidik, Professor Ernst, Professor Ayu, Professor Lawson. So as Professor Lawson just said, when you have elders in the room, you should keep quiet, which I would love to at this point. Um, but I don't think the Ibn Arabi society is going to like that very much. So I am going to go ahead and, and do the best I can to add to the, the both and approach of Professor Lawson about insan, I'd like to add the third one, and thanks to Professor Ayub that came in, Insan as the pupil of the eye, but also um, it didn't stop the patriarchal tradition, sometimes rather misogynist tradition, to associate that root also with Nisa, women. So the forgetfulness became the weak intellect of the women in many of the traditions. And we should also remember, again, that those were they were existing side by side, and you'll find many commentaries that do talk about the fact uh, that the human forgetfulness was due to the females, which the Quran does not support. So there is all kinds of exegetical material um, that trumps the eisegesis uh, in many different senses. So here is this image of, and I again want to thank Professor Lawson particularly because he did bring many of the verses of the Quran um, that I can go through quicker and perhaps share more stories from Rumi. Um, so here is the image of a donkey's tail with angel's wings. That's the human condition that Rumi points to. And here he says in Fihi Ma Fihi, man's situation is like this, an angel's wing was brought and tied to a donkey's tail so that the donkey perchance might also become an angel thanks to the radiance of the angel's company. So I wanted to have a picture of the donkey and the angel somehow combined together, but then I realized that each one of us is a unique donkey and has a unique tail and each one of us is a unique angel. So I do not want to put that particular image, a general image, a universal image, because I think the particularities in this, in this case trumps the universal. And you still have a certain image of the donkey and the angel being combined together. So since the topic of this conference is being human, I thought I would make an attempt, and it is really difficult, particularly with Rumi, to pin down uh, stories, to talk about it, because it's always both and and more. And so in the workshop, I'm going to have a few stories that talk about not just this ambiguity. It's not really a question of ambiguity more than the question about the coexistences of several different tendencies in the human community, but also within the human person that might often be contradictory. And so the donkey's tail doesn't preclude the angel's radiance and the radiance doesn't preclude the donkey's tail, and perhaps somewhere in the middle is where we will find a lot of us in that condition. So what you have is the human person 
is between the beast and the angel, between the world of pure matter and pure spirit. Humans have to walk this walk along an extremely narrow path, and as Professor Ayub, thanks to him again, pointed out the bala, that in that day of covenant, the human persons, all of us said, of course, bala, of course, not just yes, of course, we accept you as our Lord, and bala meaning, you know, the difficulty, and Hafiz said that that was the, that was the day when the humans accepted it, and he said, even God mocked us and said, he was such an ignorant fool that he actually accepted because everybody else didn't. So you have this human condition where we have done, and of course Hafiz being true Hafiz and the, the lover immediately turned around and said, why did we do this? Why did humans have to accept this responsibility that everyone shirked away from? It was offered to the mountains, to the trees, to the heavens. Everyone said, no thanks, but thanks, and did not, and we took it. And he said, we were madly in love with God. So that again becomes the reason for the human condition of acceptance. And so you have this path or the human condition of having to walk an extremely narrow path as you choose or we choose between good and evil, matter and spirit. And Rumi likes to put it like, they are like ducks. We are like ducks. We belong to the water and earth. We are half honeybee and half snake capable of producing both honey and venom. And so again, there is always that choice of what does one want to produce. So here is the ultimate one, and I'll go through some of these verses much quickly. Um, so here is where there are very contradictory, again, purpose, reason for our creation. Behold, thy Lord said to the angels, I will create a vicegerent on earth, Khalifa, inni ja'ilun fil ardi, Khalifa. They said, will, you thou, will thou place therein one who will make mischief and shed blood? So already we know that there is the foreshadowing of what, would, what is to come. While we celebrate your praises and glorify your holy name, and God said, I know what you do not know. So you have, again, the verse that, it, that is quoted here is, you've got this mystery, the enigma of the human creation, there is the vicegerent, there is the angels that express doubt, and then God says, I know what you do not know. And here you have the other words that was just quoted, laqad karramna, that we have honored all human beings. After bow down to Adam and they bowed down, we have honored the sons of Adam, provided them with transport on land and sea, given them for sustenance things good and pure, and conferred on them special favors above a great part of our creation. So the chosenness that was explained earlier is that that chosenness is for all of humanity here. So here we come to forgetfulness, nisyan, forgetfulness, and here is the story. So we have seen the etymology, we've seen the entire Quranic worldview and within that Quranic worldview, thanks to Professor Lawson, we know that both Ibn Arabi and Rumi are what Paul Nuya called very early the Quranization of memory. So in the Muslim world, there, is, there are individuals, many gifted ones, that memorize the whole of the Quran. Hafiz means the memorizer of the Quran. Um, but when we talk about many, many Sufis, we are talking about the Quranization of their memory. So their stories, everything is just 
completely infused with what the Quran talks about. So here you have a story of this forgetfulness, very simple story of the man running fearfully through the streets and everyone saying, why are you running? What's wrong with you? And he said, well, the king has decided to hunt all the asses today. So why are you running? You're no ass, you're Jesus, a fully spiritual being. The material body is only the husk in common with an animal. And the point is that that is what the forgetfulness is of the human beings, that we forget that we aren't just the donkey's tail. And when the king's hunting down, king perhaps may not have the perception of you know, what the human looks and the, what the ass looks, but one should know what one is. So Rumi then would compare our forgetfulness to having using a gem-studded Indian sword or a precious dagger to cut rotten meat or hammer it on the wall to hang an old broken gourd on it. So that's what we do. We have so much, and he would have all kinds of examples of this. We're using, you know, using a golden pot to boil turnips when he could have bought hundreds of common pots for a tiny part of that gold. So the idea, again, that one continuously is forgetful of the original covenant, but because of that forgetfulness, also is forgetful of what one carries within oneself. And, and that's being human, again, this idea of what is, what is that search. When I have proportion, the Quran says, and you'll probably see these verses in, uh, in Professor Lawson's uh, workshop, when I fashioned him in due proportion, breathed into him of my own spirit, you fall down in obeisance unto him. This is the Lord's command to the angels, this idea of breathing the spirit. And the famous verse, we did offer the trust to the heavens and the earth and the mountains, and they refused to undertake it, being afraid thereof, but man undertook it. He was indeed unjust and foolish. Now this is one area I don't mind having the man there, personally. <laughs> I won't fight for the translation of this one, right? But here it is. He was unjust and foolish, right? So you have this verse where the amana then. So there is something that is offered in trust. And that trust, the amana for Rumi, then what is that trust? It is the gift of the responsibility of free choice, of a human being's ability to recognize the spiritual aspects of his being and develop them. That is the amana, that is the, the trust. So you have most of us behaving as if in the story of a king, the king has, as Rumi says, a slightly dim-witted son, unfortunately. Most of us as parents wouldn't say that, but that was okay for that time. So you have a not very bright son that the, the king has, and the king, of course, gets the best of teachers to train and to somehow bring this son up to speed to be able to rule. And having had all kinds of education, perhaps not the Munshi that Karl Ernst was talking about, but reasonably good education, the king decides to test his son and has a, in his hand hides a ring and tells the son to describe that ring. And the son goes, yeah, it's round. And the king gets very happy, he's got something. It's hollow, and yeah, and it's yellow, yeah, and what is it? It's a millstone. So the whole question about many of us being able to put 
physical, external sort of characteristics brilliantly in our intellect. Some of the poems last night talked about it, right? that the intellect is trying to put, you know, the, the camel together for, the, for hajj, for pilgrimage, but the ishq has already traversed way beyond it. So this idea that many of us know the particularities, but, and we may know our being, we may know our looks, we may know everything, but we can't put it together. And we are as foolish as the son who will say at the end, despite knowing everything, will say, well, it's a millstone because we can't figure out that that is a ring. And that's what one needs to work with. Again, the other story, which is rather powerful, and many of you have heard it, uh, but it's worth remembering. We live the life of an embryo. If someone were to tell an embryo that a world of colors and scents of white gardens and white meadows lay outside its dark, warm prison, it would disbelieve him. It is exactly the same with human beings. They are so bound to the world of colors and forms, to the house of clay and water, that they cannot imagine another world beyond this one, a world of spiritual bliss, of subtlety, of beauty beyond description, a world in which the present actions of humanity will become visible just as flowers and grass grow in spring once the winter of the material world has passed away. So you have, again, this is what the Quranization of memory means. The Quran talks again and again of looking in nature out. At Berkeley, it's even more beautiful. Looking out in the change of seasons and seeing for there are signs for those who reflect there are signs for those who contemplate. There are signs for those who think. And that is about a visual proof of what those seasons stand for. That, and here again for Rumi, this winter then is of the material world is the winter. And spring is resurrection. And in that spring, it will eventually show. But how can you tell somebody who lives in the embryo in the comfort of the mother's womb? gets everything to eat and drink, doesn't have to make an effort, and unless that fetus, that embryo is being pushed out at a certain time, again, preordained time of birth and death, just as that preordained time forces the embryo out, there is nothing that can convince the embryo of what lays outside and why it should be in this warm, comfortable, sometimes maybe not that comfortable, prison, but it's still bound and there is a whole world outside. It's impossible for us to convince the embryo. But here is where the human person has the ability for remembrance of that original message, to remember. And in the zikr, to remember that what was outside was a open meadows and gardens from which it has come into this warm prison and coming out eventually. And that's why, of course, the Sufis called the death, the day of union. So here you have this example of being human is to try and be the embryo, be in this warm prison, but somehow believe that there is a world outside and also experience that world, as the prophet is reputed to have said, mutu qablan tamutu, die before you die. And that is the possibility that only human beings have. So.
Again, there are stages of human life growing up, kids not wanting to go to school, convince the teacher that he's sick and get a day off. Now, I was almost hoping this would happen to me today after following, you know, having to follow my teachers. I thought if 10 people tell me I look sick, I don't have to go and do this talk, but no such thing happened. Apparently, the kids in the school to get, get a day off convinced the teacher that he looked sick and finally the, the teacher believed. You know, you have many, many such stories. There is a person who is out and, you know, the story of the, the donkey and uh, the dog. The person is going out with the donkey and the thieves want to steal, but they don't want to attack and steal. So they keep telling this guy, why are you carrying a donkey? Uh, why are you carrying the dog? And if 10 people tell this person, the person says, please take it away from me because that's impure. Take it away and don't tell anyone. So the thieves get what they want. This idea of believing, Molana says, this happens a lot when humans imitate others and don't investigate the situation with their own reasoning again. So not to be waylaid, not to have to, not to listen to what others are saying, but also more importantly, listen to yourself. So again, this whole dilemma, of which is what I call the human predicament, and we will discuss this further in our workshop, in, in my workshop, we have several stories of this, this whole notion of free will and predestination, to put it, you know, rather sort of in simplistic manner, here it is how Rumi describes it. Humans are like camels with a pack saddle of free will placed on them. It is up to them to use the saddle correctly. Okay, so here is the idea. You could sort of modernize it and talk about it. So you have the story of a man entering an orchard, eating the fruit, claiming he ate it with God's permission. He says, God gave me permission. I ate it. The gardener gave him a sound thrashing or even called the servants and, you know, beat him up and said, you're being beaten up with the stick of God, right? So until the man confessed, he had stolen the fruits by his own will and not following the divine Will. So this idea of what is the divine will and coming into a situation, the humans, most of us, in many such situations, sort of what we call in common parlance, copping out. So one, that cop-out attitude of the human that, you know, God wanted it and this is how it happened. Somehow that, you know, in, in more modern times, the Sufis were often blamed for this fatalistic attitude by people who didn't understand that that was not what fatalism was. The Sufis, there was a much deeper sense of, of, of faith. But here is this example where the humans, most of us, use that the free will and predestination as something that was meant to happen and one didn't. And here is a simple story that tells you or tells all of us this is to happen. So, inshallah. Now, I know in Muslim company... Um, well, in more recent times, it's been strange of talking about people who say, inshallah, is not a mark of piety, but extremism, radicalization, that's been in the news as well. But inshallah, in, in the circles that I grew up in, often meant, again, a cop-out. If you call someone and said, are you coming today with me, inshallah, which means the person really doesn't wish to come, but, you know, he'd like, rather say God wanted it and not he or she wanted it, right? So, you know, how does inshallah work? And again, for the pious, the devout, it is the most uh, deep expression of, of deep, deep faith, which says if and, God, if and when God wills, but it does not take away the personal sense of agency as such. 
So, you know, Rumi has this beautiful line in the Masnavi which says, free will is the endeavor to thank God for his beneficence. That when the human person exercises agency, it is a way of acknowledging the, the beneficence of God and thanking, thanking him for it. So according to Maulana, this does not mean to throw all responsibility upon God, like the guy who ate the fruit did, but rather to work harder in order to reach ever higher echelons on the spiritual path. And he reminds us, when you plant colocynth, you cannot expect sugarcane. So this idea of planting and, and, and the divine uh, will combining and coming in, in complete fusion with the human will is what ultimately helps. So here again, he emphasizes, eat the fruit that you yourself have planted. Dress in the garment that you yourself have spun. So it hearkens the ancient idea that actions and thoughts constitute a garment for one's soul. Every action, every thought of the human person is like a garment. And garment is described very beautifully, of course, in the Quran as and men and women being garments to each other. Again, the idea of beautifying, the idea of protecting, the idea of covering. So that garment ultimately for the soul is the garment that the thoughts and actions provide. And here, it doesn't bother him to go into, look at the veil of the urine of actions. When you want to see if you're sick, you have to have a urine test to be diagnosed with what it is. The physician can easily diagnose, sorry about that typo, the soul's element from the veil of urine. So again, this idea, and here is where perhaps if I have time, I want to give a, couple, a, a few stories about how for him this whole journey between the angel, radiance, and the donkey's tail Somewhere in between, they are so intertwined that he talks about the fact that sometimes he used language that others considered not elevated enough. Or there, are, there is one particular book of the Masnavi that has many, uh, you know, sort of rambunctious body stories that Nicholson had a very hard time translating. And um, he, as I say in my book, I said he's... Nicholson started his own sort of macaronic tradition because he couldn't translate. He wanted to translate the entire six books of the Masnavi, but there were certain stories that he just couldn't get him, himself to translate. And he says something like, on certain topics, he, that is Rumi, is too outspoken for our taste. And many pages are disfigured by anecdotes worthy of a Petronius, but scarcely fit to be translated into the languages of these writers. To omit them, however, would defeat the object I have in view, namely to provide a complete version of the work which notwithstanding the author's passion for self-effacement reveals the breadth and depth of his genius most adequately. There's another time that he says that he translated them, he managed to translate them into Latin, but not into English, so that he could, he could protect the young minds from being corrupted. And, you know, you can see his Victorian sort of puritanical sensibilities not allowing him to do that. Um, but again, for, for Rumi, for Saadi, many of these thinkers, um, Ibn Arabi too, it, it, it was just a, a continuum. And there was nothing that was 
considered in that sense, whether it was the description of sexuality. So you have this the story, which I want to talk about, where it's not always, you know, some of the, the examples that I've provided are sort of straightforward. Uh, and often with the Masnavi, what we had for a couple of hundred years at least, in many languages that it's been translated, like the Quran again, it is parallel to that where people will just take the gist of the story, the moral of the story, and do a synopsis of that, right? And quick story read, and quick, and then you have these as my own professor Shimel and Nicholson particularly called it sort of detours. But the fun is in the detours and the language that is used is often that language of not the black and white, which for me at least as a student of Rumi is essentially what being human is, that there is constantly that area where all of us vacillate. And, and so not every character is straightforward a you know, correct, truthful one, but you will find different characters who start off as what would be characterized in literary terms as the villain, and suddenly you will find Rumi having the negative character or the villain say the deepest spiritual truths. And you have to kind of go back. If you miss the detours, you know, you don't get this. When you go back and you look at it and you say, who's saying this? Oh, wow, that's the Jewish wazir who wants to kill all the Christians, and he's talking about... God's love and unity and how that works. So you have these beautiful stories and one of the ones that Nicholson couldn't get him to, to translate was a, a story about a mistress who noticed that her donkey was getting very weak and didn't understand what was happening but she realized that the donkey was getting very weak and kind of you know overworked and she knew that he was being fed, so somehow she went to the stable only to find out that her maidservant was using the donkey for other services other than being taken, which was to have a sexual intercourse with the donkey. So the, the mistress is, is, of course, shocked, uh, and, but also realizes that the, 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 her maidservant and Rumi goes into great details, and of course this is why uh, Nicholson doesn't find it easy to translate, uh, is great details into the rapture and the ecstasy and the orgasm the, the maidservant reaches, and of course the mistress is very, very jealous of, of the maidservant. So what you have is the, maid, the mistress decides to send the maidservant on an errand so she could experience what the donkey could do for her. Uh, and uh, so you have this large, long description about how the poor donkey's gotten so weak, and then you've got this very shocking description, and then the maidservant is being sent out, except the maidservant knows exactly why the mistress is sending her away. And so maidservant, as she's leaving, so you've got this story starting with bestiality, and the maidservant is leaving and saying, I know why you're sending me out, but, uh, you know, you need someone to tell you exactly what to do. And, of course, the, the mistress doesn't know this. The, the maidservant leaves. And apparently, then we have very great detail about how the maidservant has trained the donkey not to penetrate her, deep to, to injure her intestines. Uh, and she has done it. And the story comes with the heading of, you know, 
crafting the gourd. She has got a gourd that she has made sure would, would, would be put in the right place for her to have the pleasure, but not, not the, uh, the ultimate death. The mistress doesn't know this. <clears throat> and in the act of allowing herself the pleasure, of course, is injured so badly that she bleeds to death. Right? At this point, Rumi comes back and connects it to the maidservant story and says, this is why I'm telling you on the path of spirituality, you need a teacher. <laughs> you need a teacher to tell you exactly where to do, where to go, how to do things. And then he has a verse of the Quran that talks about martyrs. And he says, can you imagine the shame that the woman who has died, who has bled to death, can you imagine her shame? And can you imagine the martyrs who die? And you've got this high and low sort of connections that are being made. And the entire story, that's not the story, by the way, if you try to come to my workshop for that story, I don't have that chosen today. But there are many such stories that talk about, most importantly, first of all, you know, perhaps he was trying to get attention. Perhaps he was trying to bring what being human is also about inclusion of sexuality and how each one of us thinks about it and what on the path is necessary for him one of the lessons that come out is we need a sheikh on the path of spirituality that each one of us cannot traverse this path alone we need guidance and we need specific guidance so that we are able to understand ourselves so here is that the testing of the urine for to be able to know what what to be what's to be done then there's this beautiful hadith of the Prophet. People are asleep and when they die, they awaken. So the Quran, again, is, is very much reflected in that, that most of us are considered dead until, even though we may be physically alive, we are dead until we are awakened or become awake to our spiritual existence. That is when we can truly believe, and Professor Chittick covered this in, in, in a most elegant way yesterday that you know that would be the awakening so in the morning light of eternity one will see what one has done in one's dream state so this world and the physical existence is equivalent of the dream state that some of us experience most of us do not remember our dreams some of us have very vivid memories of those dreams and it's the same with the entire human existence. It's like being in the dream states. And the dreams will be interpreted properly only when there is the light of eternity. So this life, life again, is like winter when the seed lies under the soil and snow, but will bear fruit in the spring when the sun of eternity shines. Of course, for Rumi, sun is also shams. And the sun of eternity, the sun that brings warmth to bring the fruit and the, the flowers out. So here is, is I thought that uh, this again, in death then, as we know that it is considered union and the, the night of union, of wedding, ors, and that is how it's celebrated all over the world. For Rumi then being human, what does it mean in death? What do we need to do in terms of being fully human in San? Your fine ethical qualities will run before you after your death. So we've talked about the garment of the soul as every thought and every action. Here is another image in this particular 
poem, your fine ethical qualities will run before you after your death. Like moon-faced ladies do these qualities proudly walk. When you have divorced the body, you will see hoodies in rows. And again, people in, in all kinds of sort of intelligence community will be very, very disappointed that the 9-11 you know, bombers were not really going for the virgins because they will, the hoodies here that are trans, translated often as the 73 virgins that Muslim men are promised uh, in the path of God if they, they kill themselves, the hoodies and these virgin of paradise are your own actions that will come your ethical qualities that will run before you. That is what you will meet in the form of these beautiful women, Muslim ladies, faithful women, devout and repenting ladies. Again here, talking about the Quran. Without number will your characteristics run before your beer. In the coffin, these pure qualities will become companions. They will, be, they will cling to you like sons and daughters, and you will don garments from the warp and woof of your works of obedience. So here again, being human is very clear for, for Rumi what that impact is and how to be human in one way is, is to don that garment, to take it with one in the coffin, to be faced with this either and of course, he talks about it as the female. So you have the virgins in paradise, very beautiful women or very ugly women uh, also. And it's sort of a reminder of one of the stories that the prophet apparently said with a great sense of humor. He was talking about uh, how beautiful every, young, every woman who dies will be a young, beautiful woman. And there was an old woman sitting in the audience. And she was very disappointed and said, does that mean I won't go to heaven? And the prophet looked at her and said, no, you won't. And she was even more disappointed and said, no, you will be transformed into a very beautiful woman. So this idea of the ethical quality that is the transformative element, and again, used in, in metaphorical terms, I thought this was one sample of many such poems. So is everything written, this whole idea that everything's written up there in the preserved tablet, the lawh al-mahfuz, the pen has dried up, God's pen dried up one time, everything forever is written. For Rumi then, it only means that it is written that every good action will be rewarded and every evil act will be punished. This is what is inscribed on the tablet and will never be changed. So that is all there is according to Rumi. Everything else is that human agency, being human is to be able to understand that basic principle for him. And, um, you know, again, if all of us are going to be judged, you know, and he has several stories about the difference in capacities of individuals. And I thought, you know, this is one, the Moses Shepherd story is a beautiful one, but here it is. One beats the ox because he refuses to carry the yoke. One doesn't beat him because he doesn't sprout wings. The ox is not supposed to sprout wings, and you can't beat him up for that. So every human to its capacity, and of course, most of you are aware of the, the lovely, beautiful story of Moses and Shepherd, where Moses comes across, you know, he's going on his way to Mount Sinai or to have his conversation with God in whatever one place, and in the process, hears something that a shepherd is talking to someone that talks about 
you know, when you come, I am going to treat you with such care and beauty. I will massage your body. I will comb your hair. I will oil your hair. I will take lice of your hair. I will, you know, provide you with the best bed. So Moses thinks he's, you know, this is a great guy, who is a great host who is hosting a guest. And uh, he goes in, but the person is alone. So Moses, according to Rumi, thinks, you know, this guy's lost it, of course. But he realizes, and he says, who are you talking to? And he said, I'm talking to God. And I uh, said, oh, really? God is not a human person that you're trying to take lice off his hair and oil his hair and massage his body and give him the best bed, give him the best food, the milk of your goat. That's not God. You, you're committing blasphemy. And, and you should never refer to God in this manner. The shepherd is completely shaken and distraught and realizes that this is a great man, a prophet of God, telling him he has committed blasphemy. And uh, Moses has delivered his judgment and leaves and goes on his way. The shepherd is so completely shattered, also cries and walks away into the desert, runs away. Um, and Moses has Khedar come to him and tell him, through Khedar, God communicating with him and saying, Moses, what have you done? We sent you to join, not to separate. The Correct kind words coming from you are as sweet to our ear as that talk with, from the shepherd. Each one, again, to his own. And there's a long, extremely beautiful, again, uh, conversation again, like the Munajat, uh, which Ansari has and Professor Chittik quoted yesterday, about how each one has a connection with God according to his or her capacity, and each one is sweet and beautiful to God. And so Moses, of course, is denied his own conversation, his own vision of God, and has to come back and make good of what he has done. He comes back looking for the shepherd, doesn't find him, realizes he has been, you know, he has he's run away in the desert. Moses tries to follow him, finally finds him, and conveys the good news. He said, oh, so-and-so, please stop. I have great news for you. And the shepherd kind of looks completely still not there and Moses looks at him and says I have a special message for you from God he says yeah what is the message and he says your prayers earlier are accepted by God, God, ha God loves those prayers and this is where most people sort of again in the shortened versions of stories this last part which to me is really beautiful uh, is, is left out where the shepherd looks at Moses and Moses says, do you understand? Shakes him up and says, do you understand what I'm telling you? God especially sent me to let you know he's accepted your prayers. And the shepherd looks at Moses and says, I'm beyond that. <laughs> you know? So here you have again, you know, what is being human? And of course, you know, for Rumi, Moses was that person that stuck by the law and did not understand the heart, the essence, and denied it to the others. So, again, for, I think I'm running out of time, I am going to quickly just read that slide and go to the next. The believer is the believer's mirror. One can see one's own faults in others. If one dislikes, if one becomes righteous about or judgmental, if one dislikes something in another person, one should try to purify oneself of that very quality. Is it not that we don't mind dipping our own hands in soup in a soup pot 
even though there may be scars or wounds on them, while we shudder when, see, when we see others do the same. So again, this idea of, you know, we cannot see what is less than perfect in ourselves. And the moment we see it in the others, we need to think about it. And I will finally end, sticking to my time, of this very famous one. So the true human person, being human, um, again, Iqbal loved it and had another poem on this, but this is where you have the famous story in paintings as well, where you have Rumi going with a little lamp looking around for the true human person, being human, and he has this beautiful verse. The whole poem is, is, is lovely. I'm sick of beasts and animals. My wish is for a human being. And that is what being human is. Insanam Zeus. So I end with the word insan again. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Colleen, for running that for me. I appreciate it. And thank all the organizers, the GTU, and, uh, and uh, uh, Sister has asked me not to call her Sister, Sister Farina, but that's what I can formally. So thanks very much for the organizer.